Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Acharya Shunya. Acharya Shunya is a classically trained master of Ayurveda and an award-winning and internationally renowned spiritual teacher and scholar of Advaita, non-dual wisdom. She's the first female lead of a 2,000-year-old Indian spiritual lineage, and she's dedicated her life to the dissemination of Vedic knowledge for the spiritual uplifting of all beings. With Sounds True, Charya Shunya has written a new book. It's called Sovereign Self, Claim Your Joy and Freedom with the Empowering Wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. I have to tell you, sitting down with this book, Sovereign Self, it felt to me like an explosion inside of myself as I was reading of the boundless power and potential that we each have. I'm so excited for you to hear directly about Sovereign Self from Acharya Shunya. Shunya, I had the great joy of interviewing you for Insights at the Edge several years ago when Sounds True released your book, Ayurveda Lifestyle Wisdom. And towards the end of our conversation, we started talking about, well, really, you started sharing about the infinite mind. And at that moment, I knew that you had in you a book about this infinite mind. I had no idea that several years later, you would write a book called Sovereign Self. So I want to start there and talk about sovereign self and that term and what it means to you. I remember that conversation. And in many ways, the journey to to birth sovereign self perhaps began in an interesting way right after talking to you, Tammy. And uh, infinity is intrinsic to the human experience. In fact, we all have such a memory of our infinite hood that any kind of suppression, obstacles, limitations, imposed rules, irrational, enforced, boundaries by others, not our self-imposed ones. They all feel suffocating because according to the Vedas, which is the oldest body of wisdom coming out of India, our true nature, which I call self in English, but it really means Atma in Sanskrit, literally means Apanoti Iti Sarvamatma, that which is boundless. So that boundlessness, limitlessness, inexhaustible essence of spirit within us is inherently infinite. And that is why we human beings push and push and nobody can keep us in a corner too long. Nobody will stay enslaved for long. Nobody will stay codependent. At some point, we're going to push against our self-created or societally given boundaries and limitations and prisons and claim our infinitehood. And I went through one such journey. And 
it became important to me somehow all teachers carry some important piece of the puzzle of our brilliance, our radiance, our lights. And for me, it was important to remind people that we are meant for infinity. We're not small creatures. We're not limited and bound, least of all by false beliefs. And that self, that boundless being within us, it may be invisible. But when we start expecting to find something amazing and infinite within us, it does not disappoint us. And it shows up in creativity. Tammy, it shows up in our ability to reinvent ourselves. It shows up in our own unending hope. And this whole march of humanity has been driven by this infinity mindset, not a finite mindset. It's very exciting and I'm so excited. I finally took three years out of my life and wrote this book. Now, Shunya, you mentioned that you went through your own personal journey, we could say from some form of feeling limited or you describe it as emotional bondage to spiritual freedom. Can you tell me more about that, your personal journey? I was born in a progressive family. The Vedas are tremendously progressive teachings, and they were the first teachings in the world, the first and only perhaps spiritual teachings that have been equally authored by male and female seers. But then India that I inherited had become quite regressive in its thinking, and patriarchy was quite dominant all over India. So when I left my home and my wisdom school, because my family was my wisdom school, Tammy, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, even my father, these are all renowned people in India. And my wisdom school had been open to women. And in fact, the first um, um, transgender student also, something quite unheard of in India, way before all of this became the trend in the world. And I come out of that family and I take up the institution of marriage because we don't come from a monastic lineage. We come from a what is known as grihastha sadhu or a householder lineage. We are meant to live in the world and then find our inner lotus. We don't have the option of being celibates or you know, taking the monastic vow. We have to live in the dirt and grime and blossom into who we are. But then marriage was a, was a whole new experience, not only of patriarchy, because that was just more in the background, but more like people wanting to define my gender, limit me by the expectations of what is appropriate for my gender. And there was no room for me to be who I am. So it was not about it was not just about rebelling to a one person or a family. It was about finding my true free essence without bitterness, truly being able to lead the life I was meant to lead. I was clearly meant to be a happily married family woman with a partner, with a, someone who can appreciate me and understand me. I was truly meant to be a spiritual teacher um, Indian yet unconventional. I was meant to be grounded in my roots, but able, able to deliver uh, new fruit to the modern seekers so that they can actually taste it. And it just doesn't, doesn't sound like some esoteric mumbo jumbo. I was meant to do all this stuff. And there I was afraid. There I was scared. And I went into the, uh, the flight, uh, fight and freeze response. And the freeze response is really scary because we become estranged from our own nature. But then the wisdom that I had received from my grandfather when I was young, systematically, day after day, and we are supposed to listen to it with utmost sincerity, which is known as Shravanam. And we're supposed to contemplate upon it in the privacy of our heart, known as Mananam. And then it is said that when we are in need of it, it will become that boat and take us across. 
and that is known as nididhyasanam. We put it into practice. And gradually, I was able to create the kind of life I wanted to lead. And more and more, it was about not just being a woman or an Indian woman, but it was about being that infinite, glorious self with an Indian body, with a feminine uh, gender. And who am I? Where have I come from? What is my ultimate journey? Where is the light? Did someone take it away from me or did I give it away? Did I uh, self-create my suffering because I was afraid of being who I am? Or did others whip me into being in servitude of societal norms? So I had all the stuff that I had to like thread apart. And even though I became the lineage bearer, I could go out in the world at 24 and say, look at me, yay. I am a 24-year-old, um, you know, lineage holder of an ancient lineage, bow to me, um, curtsy to me. Instead, I became quiet and I meditated and I sat in the garden and I spoke my truth and I accepted my fear and I embraced my shadow and I discovered my light, Tammy. And this is how this book was born. It's a true journey. And so I didn't really take on a student until age 40, when I felt really honestly, fiercely, passionately capable of looking at the student in my eye, in the eye and saying, sovereign self-governance, empowered, bold life on this planet is your destiny, none other. I couldn't have done that a day sooner. Now, just to ask a personal question, Shunya, did your marriage evolve and work out or did you have to leave that marriage in order to find your full empowerment? I had to leave that marriage with my head held high. And this was an unknown in my country, my culture and my tradition where I'm supposed to somehow put it all together. And instead I had to say, well, let me go back to the Vedas. Let me go back to the holy books. They say that a woman can do what she wants. And so I empowered myself with the truth and not with the dogma. So your new book, Sovereign Self, it's glorious. It's absolutely a gorgeous book. And as I was reading the first 50 or so pages, to be honest with you, Shunya, it was intoxicating to me. I was feeling that part of me that is absolutely infinite and radiant and powerful. And at the same time, I was aware of the part of me that's struggling in my life, that's having a hard time with various things, worry, concern, that kind of thing. And I'd love to know more how you put that together for your students, how you help your students understand, yes, there's this sovereign self, but in our direct experience, even as we're connecting with it, we can feel struggle, worry, concern, fear. And thankfully, there is a whole process to it. There's a journey. And so the whole book, say so you were to continue reading it, those doubts would resolve because it's a guided journey. And I didn't make up this guided journey. This guided journey has been conveyed by master to student over thousands of years. So there's a whole process. That's why in the pure Vedic tradition, a teacher is one who has received that systematic knowledge that allows for the deconditioning of the mind. And so there is a beautiful teaching in an ancient text called Brahmopanishad. And it says, Mana eva manushyanam karanam bandha moksha yoho bandhaya vishaya saktam which literally means, look, hey seeker, are you ready to become an infinite, glorious, gorgeous being that you are always meant to be, which you are deep inside, but you've forgotten? Then let's look at your mind. And it's the nature of the mind. If your mind is running after, it can, it can desire and enjoy the objects of this world. But if it is grasping, and clutching and greedy and subservient to the various objects, things and people, 
then it goes into a state of bandaha or bondage. You're no longer sovereign to discover your own inner garden when you're busy trying to get the flowers from your neighbor's garden at any cost, period. But that same mind, don't worry, don't kill the mind, don't hate the mind, don't shoot yourself. The same mind will become the reason for you to experience total and complete freedom, which is known as moksha or mukti in yoga. And that same mind we have to work at. So number one, in, these, in this book, I have talked about, let's look at where the mind is. And most probably it's stuck. It's trying to put um, square pegs in round holes. It is caught up in repetitive patterns. It's lamenting. Either it is in a self-pity mode or it's super angry with someone else. And it's going round and round in a loop, which I call samsaraha, and it becomes quite in a delusion. We look at the mind, but then we take it forward because we say that the same mind may be your enemy today, but this is the mind of a divine being. The same mind exposed to right knowledge will make it your friend. So it can be a ripu or an enemy, or it can become a bandhu, a friend. Here is how you make it a friend. And that's why in the first part of this book, I went into detail so that everybody can identify their mind. This is me, this is me. That is such a relief, right? That, okay, I'm not the only one. 5,000 years ago, or 10 to 5,000 years ago, these sages, men and women, enlightened beings were recognizing the mental patterns that keep us uh, forgetful of our own inner son, our own truth. And then in the second part, I talk about how we can take the mind, the senses. We don't have to sit in a stark, still position away from the world, sexless beings, only eating a certain kind of food, monotonous, to be enlightened while living in the world. How can we use our senses, our intellect, our being, our practices, so that our mind becomes our friend? Let me see that part. And then in the third part, we talk about dharma. Now that your mind is your friend, now that you, the spirit, is the master of the mind, what does that look like? How do you walk out of relationships with your head held eye and your former spouse, your friend? How do you do that? How do you, how do you fill your cup without, without you know, snatching from somebody else? How do you live this life of sovereignhood, masterhood, freedom? So it's a very systematic process, Tammy, and I'm a teacher of that systematic journey. I lived it on my own. I've been teaching it for more than two decades successfully all over the world. And all of that honestly and searingly became the book. Mm -hmm. Now, Shunya, in the book, you seem critical, I think, of a, a view that some people have of something like instant awakening, that it's possible to have a singular breakthrough at some point, and then that's it, you know, you're enlightened, moksha forever. Why, why is that something you're critical of? It's really important to differentiate uh, responsibly in a book that's talking about awakening, what is awakening. And we want, and the mind goes through its waves, some are high waves, some are low waves. And sometimes it can have a superior high wave and we can feel we're awakened and it's a glimpse into something very special, but then there is a crash landing afterwards. And the Vedas and the yogis are very clear, very clear that this is a permanent shift. This is not a shift of the mind felt better one day so the room was full of more light one day and suddenly you announced to the world, I'm awakened and you set yourself up for failure because soon, you know, there will be clouds, the sun will be covered and your mind will begin doubting itself. It will feel like a um, fake or imposter deep inside. It will lead to some uh, questionable acts and behaviors outside. Our society tends to revere people who are vacant and I don't blame anybody to do that because deep down in us, each one of us has a memory and a yearning to know who we are. 
and to, you know, to, to act and be beyond the matrix. But to announce very quickly that I have seen beyond the matrix is a new trend, but this may not be a new trend because even the ancient scriptures warn about it. And they take us through a systematic process because the mind is very chameleon-like. It can pretend that it is spiritually awake. It can get into this spiritual hypocrisy. That's the, that's the last veneer of the ego, which I talk about in my book um, called Shastra Vasana. It will memorize the Bhagavad Gita. It will chant the Buddhist sutras. It will meditate and see lights. And sadly, the ego will hope that it is enlightened. Sometimes it's not even evil. It's like this little ego trying to be awakened. <laughs> but instead, the real test of awakening is emotional maturity, ability to go through life's ups and downs without uh, extreme behavior. So. In the Bhagavad Gita, if I may say, Tammy, there is a beautiful teaching. These, these, whatever I chant in Sanskrit has become a no Sanskrit teaching for everybody. But Krishna says it simply: Dukeshu anudigna manaha, sukeshu vigatas prahaha, vidaraga bhaya krodha, sitadhir muniruchade. Who is that enlightened person? That enlightened person has gone beyond this incessant loop of an ordinary mind which desires when the desire is not fulfilled it you know it feels this attachment desire attachment then fear oh no am i the only one who will not get what i want and then anger how dare i don't get what i don't want and then anger feeds the attachment some more attachment makes us grieve some more so that's the typical mind but the awakened mind has gone beyond that. And it goes beyond the waves of so, jo, sorrow and joy. It's not a numb behavior, Tammy, but it definitely sorrow doesn't destroy you when difficulties come your way. And similarly, when joy comes your way, you don't get all swollen headed and egotistic and greedy for more. These are very grounding, real, descriptions of an enlightened being rather than you know the pop culture of awakening i kind of am the old school so i always check how i'm dealing with losses in my family or you know things that pinch me well did they pinch me and make me bitter or did they pinch me because i'm human and then i could see through it and rest with it that's there's light inside <laughs> That's the enlightened being. It's not a dark room. I wonder maybe, Shunya, if you could give an example of something that's happened in your life recently that was challenging and what an awakened response is to a challenging situation, just very specifically. Like the pinch felt like this, but instead of going left into what would be maybe an emotional response that would be all entangled, there was a seeing through. Yeah, for example, I'm right now when I'm recording this, I'm in India. And within a 12 hour period, two of my favorite uncles died from COVID. Within a 12 hour period. So two families were devastated and I was really fond of my uncles. So there was loss. I'm also taking, taking care of my aging father. And there is this constant sense of being with death being with something beloved, but that is fragile and transient. Now, when in the past I would deal with actual loss perceived or actual in the moment, you know, my I, I would shallow breathe or I would go into typical attachments, want to hold on to things the way I can control, compulsiveness, leading to self-pity, why me, leading to then anger with God or something, and then clutching some more. Instead, I'm here on a service of Dharma. I support where I can. And I, and I live with birth and death. And I see it everywhere around me. So I feel my feelings. And yet, I'm more than my feelings. So I feel like in my own life, there's no certificate if are you enlightened or not. But I'm definitely neither devastated nor stupidly optimistic. I'm real, 
I, I am kind to myself and to the people around me. I do my duty. And beyond that, I am quiet and I'm inward. And uh, people say that my presence has been helpful to them without my saying anything. I think that helps. Now, Shunya, you said uh, in a sense that you're old school, uh, at the same time, you're bringing forward this ancient tradition, new fruit to the modern seeker, I think was the language that you used. And uh, I'm curious from an old school perspective for a moment, are there stages of awakening that we can learn from the tradition? And what are those stages? And what was it like for you to pass through them? The stages of learning, absolutely. Because uh, <clears throat> the first stage that happens is when you are listening. And because you are listening to what is universal, what is beyond culture, beyond gender, which is not limited to the physical body along that goes into the realm of intelligence and consciousness, we can say that um, just listening leads to some kind of a philosophical awakening, if I may use that word, or a philosophical liberation of bondages. One starts feeling that one is not just the, one is a soul and one is not just the role that one is playing. So one becomes a little softer in their relationship. So if I'm not, if I'm just a daughter, I'm going to be clutching to my relatives. But if I am also a soul playing a role of a daughter, I can bring a lot of uh, discernment and dharma and and kindness into it, but I can also be a bit detached. So listening alone takes us to that level of uh, ideas. So my readers of the book will, as you had said, Tammy, in the first 50 pages itself, you start feeling this uh, ability to kind of, you know, be more than who we are in that moment. The next thing happens is if you read the book slowly and maybe go back on it again, or maybe even read it twice, because that's what these kind of books do, or you hear it, you know, you just read it out and then you hear yourself. The more you are with it, you will start seeing that you're contemplating upon it even in your dreams. That's the nature of truth. It need not be logically known. We don't have to write notes. We just have to hear it through the ear and then just think about it. I'm a soul and go through some of those meditations and those insights that I'm guiding people to do. And soon it becomes part of our thought structure. It's not just something hard, comes out of one year, goes through another year. It starts changing our thoughts. That's the nature of the Vedic truth. It, you can't hear it thinking nothing will happen to you. You'll enter this book and you'll come out the same way. It can't be like that. You can't enter a river and emerge from it dry. That's the nature of the scripture-based, deeper Vedic yogic truth, especially when it is written systematically and it is written with an eye to, to support your ego, not fight it, but to support your ego in recognizing your light. And if you are filled with light, you can't avoid it too long. You can't avoid it too long. So the second level is contemplation on it. And the third level of awakening will happen is that you're about you're having an argument with someone and it's a repetitive argument. It's a karmic situation. You keep meeting the same kind of people who keep stabbing you in the back or who keep gossiping about, you know, those same situations our souls keep walking into. <laughs> That's karmic. And I do talk about it in the book. And you shall find that suddenly either you say something or you don't say something, but you are able to make a change in the karmic matrix. The paradigm has changed. And at that level, the chains have fallen away and you have rebirthed yourself, new capacities, new potential. And that is what I call a mukti moment or a moksha moment or a liberation moment or an infinite moment. And you fill your life with a couple of these moksha moments a month 
you're on some serious trajectory. And this kind of wisdom supports us because it's tried, tested. It is not trying to convert the author or the sages into gods. It's not asking you to bow to anyone. It's asking you to bow to that amazing presence that dwells inside you invisibly, has been with you before you took on the body, will be there after you leave the body. You want to meet that part of you known as Atma, the boundless essence. So these stages of awakening start happening in the first 50 pages. And I can say this, Tammy, not because I'm on this bandwagon of, ooh, I wrote this book that's going to awaken you every moment. I'm saying this because this knowledge that I have faithfully communicated is designed to awaken. It's designed to get you out of any illusions of limitations and doubts and self-hatred or, you know, that you may be experiencing. So it worked mm -hmm. for me. It's worked for countless people. It will work for the reader too. Just a, a point of clarification, Shunya. What, what did you mean as you were describing the second stage of awakening involving supporting someone's ego as part of that? I, I wasn't quite clear about that. Oh, thank you for asking that question. So there are various traditions that have come out of India. We are all aware that India is kind of a a place that has been the springboard of a lots and lots of philosophies and traditions. And then there are some systems of thought and awakening that ask you to dissolve your ego or give up your ego or, you know, surrender your ego to a God or someone like that. This Vedic tradition says your ego is not the bad guy. This is the core Vedic tradition because it was a householder tradition. It says your yearning, like even if a robber is yearning to rob the bank, robber is not evil. The robber is not evil. The robber is simply misguided in remembering that abundance is their birthright. There is no evilness. There is only ignorance and forgetfulness. So if we can take someone who's in the prison because they robbed a bank and reminded them the world's treasures lie inside you, then that, that bad impulse of robbing a bank, it's nothing. We're all misguided. We're all forgotten. We are all trying to find the love in the lover when it lives inside us. We are trying to find delicious rasa or juiciness or taste in food when all the creativity and bliss lies within us. That's why you can't eat cheesecake forever. After the first few, few bites, you're done. Why? Because it's you who puts, puts the taste in the cheesecake. Then you put it the chase, taste in coffee. Then you put it in, you know, moong dal kichri. So in everything, you are the truth. And this ego is misguided. It's like a lost child. All we have to do is all lost children come home, listen to this knowledge, Vedic knowledge. And my book is a lot, lot like somebody forgot where they came from. Somebody's lost in a city. Somebody is busy robbing a bank when they're actually a king back home. We've all forgotten. We're all having spiritual amnesia known under the spell of what I call Maya. And then we start reading this book and slowly memories start coming back of, oh, I am an amazing being. I have all this power inside me, soul power, Atma Shakti. I have all this creativity untapped. I have all these abilities. And so the whole Vedic tradition was about almost like reminding somebody that you're walking around saying, where's the treasure? Where's the treasure? It's buried right inside you. So I give the story in conclusion, which Baba gave me that somebody lost their necklace of pearls and they were looking and looking. But then their friend who's like the teacher said, but you're still wearing it. 
So they had forgotten it. So it's like a coming back home. And then we take that same ego and love it and inform it of its own night light nature, truth. And lo and behold, we are surprised that that same mind slash ego starts behaving like a friend. We start hearing voices from within, Tammy, that guide us. We start behaving in ethical manners to our own surprise. We're about to yell at someone and we realize we have forgiveness within us. And we were about to run away, but we stand and take a, take a stand. Who starts guiding us? That same ego, because now it knows I'm one with the stars and the moon and God and the wind. I'm not isolated, scared little thing flitting about. So it is a case of loving the ego, supporting it, rehabilitating it on this planet. Mm -hmm. Now, Shunya, you mentioned that you became the lineage holder of your family lineage when you were just 24, and you're the first female lead of your lineage, a 2,000-year-old Indian Vedic lineage. And I'm curious to know, as a female carrying the lineage, if you feel there are certain ways that you want to express these teachings that are perhaps different than have been expressed previously. And even more than express, is there some evolution that's required within the lineage, some way at this time for it to be embodied by a woman, expressed by a woman, available to women, that there needs to be an evolution of the lineage or not? The the founders of our lineage, the human founders. So every lineage, a Vedic lineage, Vedic yogic lineage. So Vedas, just for our listeners who don't know the difference between Veda and yoga, Vedas are the source, source tradition of yoga, which we practice and use. Now in a Vedic yogic lineage, we always have um, some divine elements and some human elements. And the human elements actually begin with a male seer and his and a female seer, Vashishta and Arundhati. They were a, a pair, a partner. And their ashram was in the same, from my hometown where I come from, Ayodhya. They had a 40-acre ashram and they are talked about in the Rig Veda. And after that, there's been mostly male, male. When, when we chant and talk about all our teachers and we have memory of all the masters that came in our lineage, they're all men, one to all, one to all. Despite there being a woman in the beginning, it be, you know, India went through this male uh, androcentric phase. Whereas women teachers were known in the Vedas, they were called Brahmavadanis and Rishikas, and males here were known as Rir and Rishis. So I'm a Rishika, but we had this male phase. And the male teachers somehow separated they, because men often are able to make any system of knowledge slightly more intellectual. It's just the way they approach it. And women have a lot more emotional quotient. It's, it's a well-known fact. It's not good or bad. It's just how it is. So when I reinterpret the Bhagavad Gita or I teach, teach my teachings in sovereign self come from the filter of uh, emotional intelligence too, along with the intellectual. So that's, I feel it makes it more whole. Another thing is that because I am a householder teacher, I bring to it like real life, real life narratives around uh, say a divorce or a separation or being a single mother or, and my students are like that too. I mean, 80% of my students are women from all over the world. And so I've woven in their stories and I feel that women are the leading edge of consciousness and they, they always had a voice and they must have a voice again. Another thing I noticed with the male, the male, the masculinization of the Vedic yogic teachings was that um, it became about there was this trend because men 
were trying to prove how good they are by being celibate in our tradition. Like if I can be celibate, if I can somehow control my sperm from coming out, I'm somehow superior. And this is the proof of my, of my holiness. And then we would find not all, but some teachers with their pants down or their robes down. Feminine teachers, because they, they, they are not capable of these kind of uh, declarations, the way our physiology is made, the way we carry a womb, and especially if you come from a householder tradition, we've had babies, which means you've had sex. And, you know, it, it's just a much more real and organic journey that I want to bring. And that's why in all my teachings, including Sovereign Self, I keep talking about these things. Like I need not, but I talk about the importance of being celibate very intentionally and not just because it's a prescription and not just because it makes us feel superior. Um, in our energy around that. So the feminine energy is needed. And I'm so grateful that my grandfather saw in me that he, he saw in me before I saw in me, that's the job of a guru, that I would be able to be an advocate of very real Vedic yogic teachings in the uh, modern era. Okay, I'm gonna ask you, I think, it's a little bit of a challenging question, Shunya, uh, which is in the acknowledgments of the book, you thank your grandfather, uh, you call him Baba, uh, your teacher, and you say that to you, he was someone who is God incarnate. And, you know, I had a moment when I read that and I thought to myself, is anybody really God incarnate? I mean, we're human beings. We're, we all have human flaws, foibles. Is anybody really like that? Or is that a projection onto the perfect guru? So I'm curious what you have to say about that. It could be a projection. It could be fancy writing. But ultimately, Tammy, you know, the Vedas are spiritual teachings and they talk about God. But then they don't talk about a God who is a person. Uh, all the male and female versions of God, Shiva, Lakshmi, Parvati, they don't, they don't belong to the Vedic teachings. They come in the later Hinduism. The Vedas talk about, the Vedas, Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita talk about pure consciousness as God. And Ishvara is another a term for God. And Ishvara comes from the root word Isham, which means light, which dwells in all beings. And Many people say that Hindus believe in many gods, but those many gods, countless gods, are really only representations of that one truth. So when I say somebody is God incarnate, here is what I think. The job of God or the great omniscient dimension, as I define it in the Vedas or in my book, rather, great omniscient dimension, that great intelligence, that great source, its job is to, uh, it says, um, manifestation, maintenance, and dissolution. This is what's happening. This is the triangle, right? This is what, there is this great intelligence from which we emerge, in which we dance, and which we dissolve. And somehow there is this grand big housekeeping happening. And that is known as Ishwara or God, which is ultimately formless. Ishwara is a gender neutral word and it is not an anthropomorphic God. And so when I look at a guru who can help manifest from you, your true being, help you, gives you those tools, helps you live that through the knowledge and helps you then extinguish your ignorance in that knowledge. From that perspective, I would say that if I had to look at someone who really took a place of support, protection, guidance, and even correction in terms of ignorance, I would say that was Baba. And in my book, I do talk about karma yoga or surrender to the God presence or God principle. And I take pride in pointing out how um, how we can have, we can be an atheist, agnostic. We can love God as Jesus, Allah, Rama, Shiva, Guru, Nanak, Buddha. Or we can believe in a non-dual 
consciousness and we are still within um, touch of something supreme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Shunya, your book, I have to just, I'm just going to say it like it is. It evoked in me a deep longing for the depths of the spiritual journey and in, in a beautiful way. And I think it will do that for any sincere reader who comes to the book. And one of the things you point out is how a lot of what we're engaged in in the world today is as spiritual journeyers is something that you call drive-through spirituality. Drive-through spirituality, meaning I'm going to, you know, my true teacher is an app that I use for five minutes a day or something. I'm, I'm exaggerating to kind of make a point, but I'm not really exaggerating all that much. And part of what I was reflecting on as I was reading Sovereign Self is how, in some ways, Sounds True could be contributing to drive through spirituality and how I don't want to do that, how I want in my own life for myself to have a deep and genuine journey and to make sure that other people have that too. And so my question to you is, how do we avoid the pitfalls of drive through spirituality? Wow. First of all, thank you, Tammy. That was a searingly honest, uh, I mean, self-look. Whatever is the conclusion, that's up to you. But to be able to even do that, you know, so I'm so proud that you are my book's publisher. I have looked at that. I have at times been tempted to be that, you know, because that's the, the wave, you know, that's the drive-through wave. And it's so easy to become a salesperson. There are two kinds of uh, uh, contribution to drive-through spirituality. One is intentional, one is unintentional, you know. So um, unintentional, I think, in Kali Yuga, or the dark era, as the Vedas call it, is forgivable. But the intentional one takes that kind of hard look. And uh, I think by publishing these deeper books like mine, almost, you know, pure to, I mean, there has been amazing editing, but there was no control of the content to say, you know what, make it lighter, make it dumber, make it appeal to some people. It, it is deep, it is real, and it's kind of hard hitting at times. And I'm aware that Sounds True is publishing more such books. And I think um, this will help balance uh, to bring out more true voices, you know, true sounds out in the universe. This will help balance it. And I'm glad to hear that this aroused a deep yearning because the Vedas recognize that we have all been born with that yearning, except that for some time we get distracted by pleasure, pleasure seeking or money seeking and wealth seeking. But then when that is being taken care of, automatically this yearning becomes stronger and stronger. And I'm the kind of teacher who, who becomes the balm for those people who are genuinely looking for a real path. They are not just looking for a mantra, a 20 minute meditation, an exercise, or here is a guru worship ritual. They are looking for the real deal. And in my book, I try to offer it honestly. As for whether sounds true, will become a drive-through spirituality promoter or whether my organization, Awakened Self, will do that. That is for people like you and I to constantly do our work, ask ourselves those hard questions and continue to show up uh, in a most authentic space as possible. That's what I would say. But if I have one minute, I'd like to say this, that there was a time when I was just sitting and teaching from the scriptures, right? And then a big deal happened when I started posting smaller pieces on my social media. Now, from an Acharya perspective or a master teacher perspective, it feels like I'm dumbing down my knowledge. But I realized that I'm also meeting the people where they're at and I don't have to dumb it down. It just has to be a bit shorter and it has to be a more, um, it has to be authentic, but easy, easy to digest. 
So I've been giving myself some permissions and at every place I ask myself, am I compromising the truth or am I serving the truth? And if I'm serving the truth, I can go to bed, you know, peacefully. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, something else I wanted to ask you about, Shunya, is a phrase that I was introduced to in reading your extended bio, which is enlightened vulnerability. And you write that you encourage your students to embrace their humanity and abide in their greater power simultaneously. And this creates an enlightened vulnerability. And I wanted to hear more about what that means, enlightened vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is not a new topic. And there are some sounds to authors who have done a great work like Brené Brown and others. Thankfully, finally humanity can accept that we are vulnerable. But then I also noticed that um, sometimes if we don't bring the word enlightened or the attitude of enlightened vulnerability together, sometimes being vulnerable can spin off into self-pity, feeling entitled to remain vulnerable and not ever going into a quest to find this invincible part of you, this Avinashi, indestructible part of you, this Sanatana, eternal part of you, this, uh, um, this, uh, this, this searing power that's still untapped. So what I wanted my students to do when I started teaching and I met people who were either suppressing their vulnerability or over dramatically, you know, it was not real. So people misunderstand and they were either weak or they were like tight lipped about it. So I said, you know what, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on that we are afraid, bring it on that we're scared. We feel guilty for no reason, especially if you're women and we have shame and all that. Let's bring it on. And now let's see what the what the Vedas are telling us. How can we have conscious anger versus unconscious anger? How can we make, how can we understand guilt from a lit up and kindled with wisdom perspective and then live with it? So for example, um, I talk about my father who happens to be my only surviving family member often. And, uh, and I've had most of the people I, I have loved have passed away early. So this is a vulnerable part of me where I feel biologically alone. I even talk about it in the book, but then I bring some enlightened attitudes into it. Am I really alone? What is this aloneness imposed by the great source asking me to do, you know, why was this aloneness given to me in this designer universe with multiple galaxies? Why did this huge big intelligence choose for me to be alone biologically, have a huge spiritual family, but be alone biologically. Why? Why? What's the purpose behind it? And I realized that the purpose was that I was I, I had to go through my discomfort and then come through and find out that I'm not alone at all. And I have myself with me. And I have a whole spiritual family growing in leaps and bounds of genuine, sincere honest seekers. And so this was all designer, what was happening to me. Because there's a good chance that if everybody was alive and my first marriage was working and I was just sitting in there, my home cooking food and remembering that Baba gave me that knowledge. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, I too belong to a lineage, but you know, in modern days who can keep up with the lineage, but it didn't work out that way. The perfect marriage to a millionaire didn't work out. The, the family members who had once filled my house with voices and happiness and songs and ritual all passed away too early. And then I was clutching to my father, Tammy. And then I said, I will not clutch. I will not clutch to my son who lives far away from me abroad. I will not live to my current partner. I will not clutch anyone. And then began the embracing of the self and embracing of a bigger family that, you know, is a whole new story for me. So enlightened vulnerability allows me to talk about my stuff. I don't have to pretend to, to not be affected by things and yet I can bring light into it. And so 
it's working. It's working for me and it's slowly working for the people who read my stuff or learn from me. Mm -hmm. One final question, Shunya. I think many of the listeners who tune in to this podcast, Insights at the Edge, are seeking deeper meaning in their life. And there's a very interesting part of sovereign self where you talk about how meaning is not something that we add to our life. You write in very strong language and you have this power in sovereign self where you just, you claim things, you state them. And as you've been using this word searing, it has a searing impact on the listener, the reader. You write, I affirm that our life is meaningful, period. You write out the word period, that it's not about something outside of ourselves. And I would just like you to end by addressing that listener who's looking for deeper meaning in their life. I think if the journey is from bondage to sovereignty, from shadow to light, from feeling afraid to feeling powerful, then we have to look at all the things we thought are giving meaning to us. Like being the daughter of a family gives me meaning or being the teacher of certain set of students gives me meaning or um, having a bestseller under my pocket gives me meaning. And I know all that's fine until all this works for me. But the day the students are not there or the family passes away or say I'm not able to deliver, you know, uh, another big seller, does it mean that my meaning will end? Does it mean I'm going to go into a depression? But isn't that what happens? We ascribe way too much meaning to the things that are flowing from us. So at the end of the day, I do everything. I'm a daughter, a mother, a wife, a teacher. I'm a gardener. I'm, um, I'm a philanthropist. I, 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 I write books. I'm an author. I'm a speaker. But at the end of the day, I'm Shunya which means I'm empty of all these roles. And I just become quiet into this invisible, powerful presence that can be or become anything. It can wear any hat for a week, a season, a lifetime, or a couple of lifetimes, but it is not that. And what that allows me to do is I'm able to take back the power and the emotional investment I made into all these roles. And I'm ready to be. This is what my students are amazed at, that when my foundation is doing well and things are working for us, I'm, I'm the same. And when things don't go my way, I'm still the same. And the reason is that my meaning doesn't come from them. These meaningful things come from me. And that's the difference. This me is a big me. And this me is not in bondage of those things, those ducks lining up a certain way. And this is very important for us. For sincere seekers, we have to discover our true self beyond our vocations and our professions and our hobbies and our biological and psychological or even uh, imaginary associations or you know, things like that. We have to be able to go inwards and claim that truth, which is formless. And then life begins at another level. I've been speaking with Acharya Shunya. She's the author of a gorgeous book. It's called Sovereign Self. Claim your inner joy and freedom with the empowering wisdom of the Vedas, Upanishads, and Bhagavad Gita. It's the kind of book to read, to study, to contemplate, and then to read, study, and contemplate again and then to give to your friends and then read, study, and contemplate again. And I say that because of uh, what it evoked in my experience reading the book, Sovereign Self. It really brings forward your own power and sovereignty. Acharya Shunya, what a, a joy to talk with you here. And I hope I have the chance to be with you in person sometime. I would really value that and enjoy it. I'm so moved by you and inspired. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback. 
being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.